Welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm Laura Robinson. I'm Ian Mills. And we are PhD candidates at Duke University. Today we're discussing Raymond Brown's The Birth of the Messiah. The first year we did the genealogies. The second year we did the uh, census. The third year was the Magi. And this year we are doing the visitation of Mary to Elizabeth. This is actually our first time recording something new since Ian and I both moved away from Durham. Yeah. Uh, There's been a lot of changes in our lives. Uh, We will be doing a show where we tell you about what's going on with us and what we're doing. And the one change I want to mention is that I had a baby girl named Winona Olive. We love her very much. She's adorable. Uh, We'll be telling you more about what's going on with us and our lives as New Testament scholars. Absolutely. Today we're talking about a story from the Gospel of Luke, where Mary, once she's found out she's pregnant, goes to Elizabeth's home, and there is a very famous dialogue sequence that culminates in what's called the Magnificat. This is a song that is in the text that has become a very important piece of liturgy since. It begins with two foretellings, you know, angels come to Zechariah, angel comes to Mary, and tells them about the the baby that is coming. And there's this visitation, and then there's two births. When we're catching Mary at this point in the story, uh, Mary has just had an angelic visitation. Gabriel came to her and told her about the, the fact that she would be having the Messiah. He revealed to her that this would be a virgin birth, that she would have the baby in spite of the fact that she is not uh, married to her fiancé, Joseph, yet. And the angel also told her that her kinswoman, Elizabeth, who is elderly and has long since been thought to be infertile, is in fact in her six months of pregnancy. For nothing is impossible with God, he says. So when we see Mary here, she has just gotten this news and she leaves to go find Elizabeth. Right. And while there is an angelic annunciation of sorts in the Gospel of Matthew to Joseph, the stories told here in the Gospel of Luke are unique to Luke's Gospel. So Mary leaves with haste for the hill country, Laura. What's the hill country? Well, that's a great question. We've just seen Mary and she is in Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is in Galilee. This is in the uh, northernmost part of Palestine. Uh, Just south of that is a region called Samaria. And below that is Judea. So we're told that she's going to the hill country of Judea. Some people have thought the fact that Mary has just left Galilee and gone to Judea means that Luke has made a geographic mistake, that he thinks that uh, this is not that long of a journey and that Galilee and Judea are contiguous. But there's some dispute about this. Tacitus and Luke both say Judea when they basically just mean the whole land of Israel, the whole region of Palestine. So it's possible this hill country is in Galilee. It's just not clear exactly where it is. So Zechariah served sometimes in the temple in Jerusalem. So one would think he probably lives within some level of access to to Jerusalem when he has to serve there. We know that not all priests lived in Jerusalem. A lot of them lived outside. So again, this doesn't really help us narrow down the setting of where this hill country is. Uh, Because Zechariah doesn't have to live in Jerusalem to be a priest. Luke does not need to be associating Zechariah with this place full time. So again, we're still not totally sure where this hill country is. Right. E.P. Sanders in his big book, uh, Judaism, Practice, and Belief, uh, actually makes the argument that there are priests living all over Palestine. And some of them probably never made the trip to Jerusalem. They just were belonged to the priestly lineage and lived up there and maybe served some local functions. 
we really just don't have any information about where these people might have been, other than Luke's, you know, passing comment, the hill country of Judah, which, you know, as Brown shows using Tacitus, could just mean all over the place. What is interesting is that in Christian reception history, uh, the scene of Elizabeth and Zechariah's home eventually does become Jerusalem. And this is because Zechariah, later Christians, will confuse Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, with Zechariah, the high priest, the son of Berechiah. You'll see this Zechariah at the end of Second Chronicles, and you'll also see him in the book of Matthew. He is famous for his murder. He was murdered in the temple, and he was a high priest. Uh, the Proto-Evangelium of James, an early narrative of the uh, pregnancy of Mary and the birth of Jesus includes a scene where Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is killed in this way because clearly the author thought that Zechariah the high priest and Zechariah the father of John the Baptist were the same person. They Luke does not think this. Luke does not make this mistake. He does not conflate them. Zechariah is just a priest. He's not the priest. He doesn't have to live in uh, Jerusalem and there is no indication in the text that he died a violent death. So Luke is not making this conflation. Right, the conflation is something that happens in early Christian history, but happens quite yeah. early with the Proto-Evangelium of James. If we can date the Proto-Evangelium to before Justin, which I think is plausible. Early Christians are conflating first names left and right. Yeah, that's right. You know? And part of what led to this confusion is that if you read Second Chronicles, which is this book that falls at the end of the Jewish canon, uh, Zechariah there is named Zechariah ben Jehoiada. So he has a different father's name than Berechiah which leads to some quite confusion over who it is that Matthew and Luke are identifying as, you know, the most recent death. The phrase in Matthew and Luke is like all the, what is it, all the blood spilled from Abel to Zechariah, mm -hmm. son of Berechiah. We're not going to be trying to solve that puzzle here today. Uh, maybe it was name confusion. Maybe it was some sort of variant reading. This is part of what fed into the conflation of Zechariah's, which again happens in early, early Christian reception of Luke and Matthew, not in Luke and Matthew themselves. Mary and Elizabeth meet at Elizabeth's house. Uh, Elizabeth experiences the fulfillment of the prophecy that John the Baptist would be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb, which Gabriel told Zechariah, because John the Baptist uh, in utero leaps with joy when he hears Mary greet him uh, because he recognizes this. So we see that John the Baptist is in fact filled with the Holy Spirit from the get-go. Elizabeth responds to this fulfillment of prophecy, uh, John the Baptist jumping in the womb with singing her own song. And this, Raymond Brown points out, is one of a series of songs that takes place during the Nativity. The Nativity is crammed full of four different songs, which don't really play a role otherwise in either the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Acts. The song goes, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You might recognize that from the Hail Mary. The first lines of the Hail Mary are Gabriel's greeting to Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace. Blessed are you who are is highly favored, is another way of putting it. The Lord is with you. Uh, and then we move into Elizabeth's song for the next part of the Hail Mary. And then Mary responds with her song, famously called the Magnificat. And we're going to do a reading of it for you here today. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones, and he has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This song starts with, and Mary said, and that's actually the first point of interest for us, because not all manuscripts start that way. In fact, three Old Latin manuscripts, including our two oldest and best manuscripts of the Old Latin Gospels, Codex Vercalensis and Codex Veronensis, have attributed the song not to Mary, but to Elizabeth. There's also one of our two extant Irenaeus uh, against heretics manuscripts has this uh, attributed to Elizabeth. And then Jerome's, Jerome's translation of Origen's homilies on Luke also has the Magnificat being sung by Elizabeth. In more modern Christian history, uh, Harnack argued very strongly that Elizabeth is the proper singer of the Magnificat. Right. So... So Harnack's actually arguing that Elizabeth is the older reading, and that it's been replaced with Mary, been reattributed to a figure who was more prominent in church history, obviously Mary, the mother of God, uh, from the original reading, Elizabeth, as attested in these old Latin manuscripts. And, you know, and in fact, if this was Uranus's text, that would be very early and powerful evidence. So how do we assess Harnack's proposal? Well, first of all, we have to say the external evidence here strongly favors Mary, right? All the Greek manuscripts, all the Coptic manuscripts, all the Syriac manuscripts, all give us Mary as the singer of the song. It's only these Latin manuscripts and potentially Irenaeus, which would be powerful, uh, that give us Elizabeth. So the external evidence goes hard, I think, against Harnack's proposal. Mary is still the clear favorite on external evidence. It's hard to not see Harnack's proposal is a bit of a Protestant reactionary move, to be honest. You know, this is coming from a very Lutheran uh, school of scholarship. It's hard to not see that as being a bit anti-Catholic. Interesting, um, yeah. Protestant theology influencing Harnack's scholarship would uh, not be the first time we've suggested that on this podcast. All the same, we should give Harnack's proposal a fair shake. He's got manuscript evidence sure. on his side. This is not a conjectural emendation. So what is it that makes Harnack actually choose the old Latin manuscripts over and against all of the Greek? One interesting piece of data is that the Magnificat does look a lot like Hannah's song from the book of Samuel. Uh, the book of Samuel opens with the birth of Samuel to Hannah, who is a, an infertile wife who is not able to have children. And then when she is promised a son, uh, she sings a song that looks a lot like the Magnificat. So we could say that if there's a parallel between Hannah and the Hannah's song in the Magnificat, that does fit Elizabeth's context better. It's not at all clear that Mary's situation is particularly lowly or desperate or a response to her poor circumstances, uh, because we don't know if Mary's infertile. We don't know if she feels, if she perceives her of herself as, um, is disadvantaged in some way, because Mary's not even married yet. Uh, but Elizabeth is infertile. Right. That last point is really important. So we have, on one hand, favor of Harnack's proposal is the strong parallelism with Hannah, whose situation is parallel with Elizabeth, both older, infirm, infertile women. The second point, which you raised that I think is really an interesting point from Harnack, is this reference as being, as Brown translates it, in a humble state, that is in a humble state of affairs, the lowly estate um, of the singer. And it's worth asking, uh, is Mary really bad off? Is Mary really, the song seems to praise God for miraculously intervening into a desperate and difficult situation. And Mary is a young lady who is betrothed to her husband, Joseph. 
what's so bad about her situation? She seems to actually be, you know, doing quite well. Whereas Elizabeth, this fit makes perfect sense. Uh, a miraculous intervention saving Elizabeth from her barrenness. Yeah. Yeah. In the cultural context in which they live, Elizabeth is by far in the worst situation. That said, there are, I think, a few clinchers that seal the deal for Mary. The first is the catchword of handmaid or servant. He has been mindful of the lowly estate of his servant or handmaid. This calls back to Mary's response to Gabriel when Gabriel tells her how she's going to have the baby. She says, I am the Lord's handmaid. May it be to me as you have said. So we have, again, the speaker calling herself a handmaid or the servant. This language comes up again. So that does look like it's Mary speaking again. The second detail is that the uh, Magnificat, the singer says that all generations will call me blessed. This goes really well with what Elizabeth just called Mary. Elizabeth said that uh, she is blessed among women. So it makes sense that Mary would say of herself that all generations will call me blessed. And this makes more sense than Elizabeth saying it, because no one has told Elizabeth that she is blessed among women. No one has given her this high title. And Mary's role in salvation history as the mother of the Messiah is a lot more elevated. So both of these look like they really don't belong with Elizabeth. Uh, to go back to the lowly estate thing, too, you know, we do need to remember how interested Luke is um, in women, and particularly in poverty and in situations of oppression. And Jesus is constantly allied with the poor in this text, and that he is allied with the downtrodden. So it makes sense that Luke would, without drawing a lot of attention to it, just sort of assume that Mary is in a situation of poverty and oppression, because she is part of this conquered nation in Israel that is suffering, and she is part of its suffering population. She's not an elite person. She's not an aristocrat. She is lowly. So it makes sense that this would be a trait of Mary that Luke is particularly interested in. I completely agree. I'm pretty convinced that Harnack is wrong here. I'm siding yeah. uh, with the Mary reading. But I don't know, if we dug up a papyrus tomorrow, second century papyrus that gave the Elizabeth reading, I'd be seriously tempted to reconsider it. For sure. Uh, but the internal evidence, I do think, goes hard for Mary. It's worth noting here that Brown actually tries to split the difference. Brown gives a different proposal. Brown suggests that the original reading was actually just she sang, leaving ambiguous who the speaker was. There is no external evidence for this, except the IGNTP, the International Greek New Testament Project, does say that Gregory Thaumaturgus, Gregory the Wonder Worker, gives us this reading. But that'll be in a patristic citation. And, you know, substituting a she for a name is exactly the kind of thing that people do when they're quoting works all the time. So it's not a very reliable textual basis. Uh, so Brown tries to say it was she, and then different scribes later filled in their different conclusions about who she was. I think that's pretty yeah. unlikely, given we don't have any manuscript evidence for that. I don't think people deliberately changing Mary's name to Elizabeth is necessary. Um, I think it makes as much sense. You know, you'll notice a lot of these do show up in, you know, t three of the ones that we cited show up in, in quotes. So it makes sense to me that you could look at a sheet of Luke and see Elizabeth talking, Elizabeth talking, Elizabeth talking, and then you get to somebody talking and you assume it's still Elizabeth, right? That makes sense to me that that could be not something people do deliberately to take the song away from Mary and give it to Elizabeth, but just because, 
you get the line scrambled. And there's always tons of confusion in manuscripts around names anyways. Yeah. The names are yeah. always changing and moving and shifting. You don't have quotation marks in this era, so when someone's when someone's speaking and when they stop speaking is not always clear. So now that we've covered the really great, you know, uh, I like to type introductory issues to the song, uh, let's talk about what the song is actually about. This song starts with a strophe of praise, uh, and then the second strophe seems to be all about God's work of power, which Mary declares accomplished at that time. The motif she's discussing, the theme that shows up in this, is what we call eschatological reversal. Eschatological reversal is the idea that at the eschaton, at the fulfillment of all things, uh, the statuses of people in the world are essentially reversed. Uh, the poor are blessed, the uh, they are rewarded, they are cared for, they are uh, richly uh, richly granted material things and, and often power. Uh, and the wealthy and the powerful and the dominant and the political politically influential, uh, have those things taken away from them. Sometimes this shows up in more corporate ways, where uh, Israel, the downtrodden nation, becomes the ruler of all the nations, and sometimes it's a bit more social, that poor people take the place of wealthy people. Uh, this shows up all over the place in post-exilic texts and early Jewish texts. It's a very common theme, uh, and one that early Christian literature really latches onto. Yes, Luke is absolutely going to latch onto these eschatological phrases about reversal and use them to describe the life of Jesus throughout his gospel. And he seems to be introducing those themes here very early on in the gospel. At the same time, I think we shouldn't miss the generation to generation sort of like historical consciousness that's present in the Magnificat, that she seems to be looking back uh, at the history of God's history of action with respect to Israel, um, you know, the fulfillment of promises made to our ancestors and to his descendants forever. There is a sort of a sort of iterative or perduring uh, fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel that looks like these same things. Like it looks like taking down the, the lofty, the powerful, and filling up the poor and the downtrodden. And there is some debate here about what Mary is talking about, whether Mary is using this, these verbs to talk about what God is like, or whether she's confessing that this is what has happened in her miraculous conception. And these are subtly, but I think importantly, different ways to read this text. I mean, this is some of this is going to get us into the always difficult question of realized versus future eschatology, which I think is unusually complicated in Luke. You know, this is a tough issue in all of the New Testament that sometimes promises for the future are treated as fulfilled now and sometimes they're held off for later. But you know, Luke in particular has this this idea of what Konzelman calls the middle of time. Uh, Luke is going to take some of these ideas of what God is going to do, and he is going to push them into the future a bit, uh, and he is going to treat a lot of this as eschatological. Uh, the parable of Lazarus and the wealthy man is a really good example of this. And we're going to see this particularly when we look at Acts, which is the whole era of the church. Luke is really interested in the life of Jesus is this particular blessed time where the eschaton is sort of uniquely present in a new way. Uh, Satan is absent from Luke in a lot of ways, that he flees after the temptation narrative. He doesn't reemerge until the crucifixion. So we, we catch up the world in this moment where eschatological fulfillment 
has really meaningfully happened in some way uh, is how Councilman thinks about it. And I think this, I think this could be read as a really good example of that, that things are more fulfilled now in this narrative than they even will be in a few years, according to this text, you know? And I think this is a good point to introduce what Raymond Brown spends a good deal of his commentary arguing. And this is the gesture that I think Laura and I want to hold at some distance, but um, let's bring it forward here, which is that Raymond Brown is acting very much like a, you know, late to mid 20th century scholar who does source criticism on everything Mm -hmm. ad nauseum. He is going to be arguing that this song is a pre-existent source that the author of the Gospel of Luke found and incorporated into his gospel. And he's going to ask himself, okay, if this is a pre-existent source, who wrote it? And his answer is that the Magnificat was written by an early Jewish Christian community who was writing about the salvation of the people of God by Jesus. And looking back at the entire scope of Jesus's life and saying, ah, Jesus did all of this in fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham. And then Luke grabs this, takes that, puts it on the lips of Mary and adds in the all generations will call me blessed bit in the middle. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so Laura and I are going to come around to critique this at the end, uh, but let's just entertain Brown's idea for a second, okay? No, for sure. So the specific group of people that Brown associates with this is what he calls the Anavim. Uh, Anavim is the Hebrew word for the poor ones, the poor. And he traces this identification as a as a label for a group of Jerusalem-based Jewish Christians who saw themselves as the poor and kept on these very uh, Jewish traditions in the Christian church. This group of Jerusalem-based Jewish Christians does show up at the beginning of the Book of Acts. This is uh, when we see the Jerusalem church taking off. We also see them really interested in the question of how to care for the poor when we see this church, that they share all of their possessions together. Brown uh, sees this group as being very similar to the Essenes, the group that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is also uh, a community that wrote hymns of people singing to God about saving them from their weakness and their poverty, and also had this communal ownership thing. So Brown looks at the Jerusalem narrative in Acts and what's going on at the Jerusalem church and sees this sort of early radical communal Christian Jewish group that thought of itself as poor and probably was materially poor in a lot of ways. You know, look at the role that the collection has in the life of Paul providing for the Jewish church. And basically was writing, this community was writing their own hymns, reflecting this perspective when they thought about Jesus. That's where Brown thinks this came from. So I am refusing right now to get tangled up in the question of who are the poor What does this term refer to? What relationship does it have to the Ebionites? What can we use Jewish Christian sources to reconstruct? What does it mean to call something a Jewish Christian source? This gets us down all sorts of rabbit holes that we're going to avoid. But might make fun shows later. (laughs) So we've given you Brown's theory. Uh, I'll just say from my perspective, this sort of source criticism assumes a model of gospel composition where gospel authors are just sort of drawing on pre-existent written and oral sources and just sort of binding them together. Mm -hmm. So it assumes a model of gospel composition that is communal and collective and mostly a matter of compiling that I think doesn't really take account of how writing worked in antiquity. For a recent and I think trenchant critique of this sort of way of envisioning gospel composition as compilation by communities, uh, see Robin Walsh's recent book, The Origins of Christian Literature. And I think even more problematic, Mm -hmm. it assumes 
like the scholar's ability to locate and identify individual sources, um, interpolations in those sources to a degree that is just totally implausible. Like, I just do not think scholars mm-hmm. can identify sources and the way they're used and digested by their authors with anything like the kind of confidence Brown does. There's a strange disconnect between Brown's grammatical notes and Brown's commentary. In the grammatical notes, he notes over and over mm-hmm. again that the song is full of vocabulary that is distinctively Lucan, words that show up a half a dozen mm-hmm. times in the Gospel of Luke and maybe only once anywhere else in the entire New Testament. This language and this, this imagery and these themes are fundamentally Lucan. I think more likely this is a Lucan composition. Eschatological realization is going to be a really big theme in Luke. Uh, Luke is not as worried about imminent eschatology as, say, Matthew is. Uh, I think when you look at Luke generally, you see a guy who is very comfortable with the idea that something essential was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus eventually, and then particularly in the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense that when Luke writes Mary's song, all this would be kind of compiled from his perspective, that this would be, we have this sort of unifying Christ event idea emerging. I don't think that's that strange to me, that Luke would not be making these really careful distinctions. It's also worth noting that when we look at the Magnificat, almost every single line of the Magnificat has some kind of parallel in the Septuagint or in other early Jewish literature. Right. Raymond Brown calls this a kento of Old Testament songs and quotations. And Akento, oh, you can go listen to our episode with Mark Goodacre on the NT pod about the early Christian Kentos, but Akento is just taking lines from other works and putting them together to tell a new, to create a new work, create a new story. So you can read in Genesis 30, Leah says, Blessed am I, all women will call me blessed. Uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses says to Israel, God has done great things in you. Psalm 111 says, uh, holy and awesome is his name. Psalm 103 says, the mercy of the Lord is from ever everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him. And, and then, of course, in Hannah's song, this idea of reversal shows up, that God is the one who makes, po- makes people poor and makes people rich, often with this kind of reversal idea. So all that is to say, this looks like a text that emerges from Old Testament themes. So while we don't find Brown's suggestion plausible that this is a pre-existent source that is grabbed and plugged into uh, the Gospel of Luke, we can acknowledge what motivated Brown's proposal, which is that this seems to be a description of uh, political change, right? The bringing the, the powerful down from their thrones and lifting up the lonely and a description of, you know, something done for the sake of Israel. And I think the answer to this has to be looking at Uh, Luke's theology of Israel and Luke's theology of what the gospel should mean for the wealthy and for the poor. And that's really complicated and how you deal with the realities that, you know, the powerful still hold their thrones and the poor are still poor and the rich are still rich, even in places where Christian communities are dominant. Uh, Hold that together with the vision that Luke casts um, as a thing fulfilled (laughs) is is a difficult theological problem. But I think it doesn't require a sort of source-critical solution. It doesn't require us to go the route of Brown. I think we can make sense of this as part of Luke's vision for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And, and when you look at Luke acts together, uh, you know, I, I'm reminded of Kevin Rowe and World Upside Down and the way in which the Roman world is engaged in the Book of Acts. It is a theological problem, for sure, for the reader, but I don't think that necessarily means that Luke is gesturing at something other than realized eschatology. Uh, and when we look at Luke's whole work, we see Luke as someone who is intensely interested in social structures and governance and does see Jesus as a major challenge to them throughout his entire life. So I, I think that's interesting. And I think that um, the fact that Caesar is still in power when Mary sings this, I don't think Luke sees that as being in contradiction with his larger theological project. Right. Brown takes a sort of spiritualizing approach when he tries to talk about what this now means in the new Lucan context. And that is that spiritually Christ is Lord, even though Caesar politically still holds power. And I think there's some truth to that. I'm also not sure I'm terribly mm -hmm. happy with that simple bifurcation of the spiritual. No, for sure. Yeah. Or political. Well, Laura, it was really lovely doing another episode with you. Yeah, it was really great to record a Christmas episode. It's been a while since we've recorded something new. We've missed this. We've missed talking to you guys. Well, Merry Christmas, Laura. Merry Christmas, Ian. And Merry Christmas to all those who celebrate.